This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflone. And we're not going to be talking about the White House or other timely things. That way, this podcast can be more of an evergreen podcast that you can listen to (laughs) six months from now and have it still be relevant. However, can I still make the joke that we'll be on, like, our 18th press secretary at that point? Sure. Press secretaries, communications. Just rack them up. Directors. Who knows what'll be happening? Everything might be on fire. North Korea might have launched a nuke. We don't know. But you know what we do know? We will still be anti-human trafficking. (laughs) And if nothing else, Scaramucci was colorful. You can give him that. There we go. I think we can all agree. So, uh, JJ, can you introduce our topic for today? I would love to, Seth. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking about human trafficking and drugs. Now, this isn't drug trafficking, which is a thing. And I understand this can be confusing because, in fact, when human trafficking first started to be discussed legally as the term human trafficking rather than sort of slavery or human bondage, it the law was taken a lot from actually existing drug and weapons trafficking law and sort of actually rhetoric surrounding that. So what we are talking about today is not the trafficking of drugs, not just the movement and the creation of drugs across borders. No, no, no. We are talking about how drugs as an entity and the people who make them or use them, how that overlaps with the human trafficking field. So human trafficking and drug drugs, two separate and distinct things with some overlap. Both are two things you should also say no to. Just going to throw that out there. So to kind of kick things off, I think the best thing is to talk about how this overlap really kind of falls in three distinct categories. You have trafficking, um, human trafficking and drugs occurring via cartels, gangs, organized crime, that sort of thing, which Seth is far more of an expert than I am on that topic. Then you have the use of drugs as a tool to control people, to control trafficking victims. And then you have the use of a drug addiction as a vulnerability that is exploited by traffickers in order to maintain control, which is it is different than the previous sort of statement. And we'll get into sort of those differences. But when we're talking about this, What I think is so interesting is that human trafficking and drugs, this is something that technically falls into depending on the type of trafficking is also occurring. This could be part of sex trafficking. This can be part of labor trafficking. This can be part of both. And also this is something where the people involved in it who are victims oftentimes I think are extra vulnerable because they're falling into a very illicit market. You know, people don't talk about buying and selling drugs, really, you know, sort of in day-to-day discourse. And this is something where certainly if you're at all either addicted or using or just holding drugs, I think you're far less likely to want to cooperate or speak to law enforcement because you then are in a very vulnerable position. 
And to uh, start from the uh, top view and then go down to the individual individual view, we have yeah, we have cartels in Mexico, and it changes over time. So even listing off the cartels, uh, it depends when you look. So 2017 is different than even 2016 in some ways. But currently, mm-hmm. there are seven notable cartels according to looking at DEA Strat 4, which has a really good map and, and keeps track of this, and a BBC article. The largest one by far is the Sinaloa cartel, which also controls most of the area in uh, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and part of Texas, which is uh, quite a lot. And part of what's notable is how much of the human trafficking routes that they control. So if people, and not not just trafficking, but smuggling, most notably. So if people want to come through, they have to go through areas that the cartels have realized they can make money on. And so that means these cartels, which really the the other term that's used for them, which is a little more accurate, are uh, transnational criminal organizations because they are not just in Mexico, nor do they just do drugs. And that's one of the things that's also notable is human trafficking and human smuggling are a big part of their business models. They haven't exceeded drugs yet. Yeah, I think that was one of the more interesting things for me is seeing how when we discuss sort of criminal organizations and human trafficking, how there are very few organizations that explicitly deal in human trafficking. It's more like criminal organizations make money from a variety of sources, and one of them happens to be the buying and selling of people. Normally, they're engaged in a lot of other very sort of nasty, violent activity as well. But maybe, Seth, because I this is something that I know I kind of struggle with finding the definition. What's the difference between like a cartel and like a gang or a mob? Because we talk about sort of gangs, particularly in sex trafficking in the U.S., sort of being involved in street prostitution pretty heavily um doing sex trafficking via street prostitution so what's the difference between like a gang and a cartel a lot of it is scope i mean the the technical definition of a cartel is uh somebody it an association of, of like manufacturers who inflate or keep the price of of something at a high level or restrict competition so part of it is these groups are very competitive and they're very they're very much businesses. Like they're they're illicit businesses that have supply chains and uh in many ways have normal business functions. It just happens to be outside the normal uh legal sphere, so they do things like money laundering. So a lot of it is the scope of their operations, whereas some uh group like MS-13, which is you know, originally out of L.A. It, it was mentioned in Donald Trump's speech, so uh, it's context for it. Where, where they have a lot of reach, these gangs have a lot of reach, but they're not part of the cartel. But a cartel, like most notably the second largest one, the Jalisco New Generation, that uh, may use MS-13 or use other gangs within a country. Okay, so it's, it's, yeah, so I'm getting, basically, so the cartels are much more of a, 
almost like a business entity or a corporation almost is mm-hmm. what is kind of my feeling, which is actually more frightening, I suspect, than a gang. Just because I feel like once you get into when you're big enough scope that you probably need an accountant, I get very concerned. So, and I do, I do know too. So cartels are are exclusively in, in South America and then spread out, or because I know Mexico is is huge for human trafficking. I I, I do know that largely because, um, well, one I know that before 2007 they didn't have. Mexico itself didn't have any anti-trafficking laws, anti-human trafficking laws. So I know they mm-hmm. didn't have the funds for it. And I know that it's a major transfer place because there's a lot of people fleeing violence and low economic opportunity in South America by coming up through Mexico into, into the U.S. Or just actually coming into Mexico proper just to work and stay in Mexico. But is 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 that our cartels just like a South American thing that occasionally have business entities sort of or, or like fingers in the pies like up in the US or are they just kind of everywhere? Well, a transnational criminal organization that yeah. you know, essentially drug cartel are not just in Mexico. Um, I haven't seen whether the terminology is the same worldwide, but the function is the same. Okay. Certainly like, like uh, a lot of... Uh, opioids i've read come from afghanistan mm-hmm. and and so there's other places in the chain and even as as uh, we're going to talk about later with mules i mean they're not just a a mexico to or a south america to america thing either so mm-hmm. um so so that's part of it uh also they haven't always at least mexican cartels haven't always been what they are because at different, there were other ways into the U.S. And as we, as our security apparatus limits others, then they find new ways. And it's largely the one. The big reason that Mexico is big for drug trafficking and human smuggling, and then by ver, by virtue of that human trafficking, is because the United States is a big market for both. That's yeah. the sad part of it. Oh yeah, if if there weren't buyers, there wouldn't be a supply. And and so that that's the uh, the challenging relationship we have there. So uh, as I mentioned, Sinaloa controls most of the border area, and then um, currently it's a mixture of Los Los Cetas and the Gulf and the uh, Gulf Cartel. Although Los Cetas controls most of the. Most of that uh, around the uh, southern part, the southern land border of Texas. And it's a given these cartels don't always get along with each other and they're competing. And sometimes they cooperate, which was with uh, Jalisco New Generation, which is uh, Sinaloa's big competitor. Sinaloa was run by El Chapo Guzman, who is now in jail. And then they were competing with Jalisco New Generation, but then they decided to not work with Sinaloa anymore and then challenge them for control. So it's a very dirty business and there's a lot of violence that results. And so to get into how drugs get into the country, Uh and this is where it gets a little more 
dicey to understand when we start talking about trafficking. So in this case, we for this the rest of this podcast, we are not going to be talking about straight human trafficking or human trafficking that turns into smuggling. We're talking about people who smuggle drugs and are in some way coerced or trafficked, or later on, how drugs are used to maintain control or attract victims. Exactly. So maybe if I can just give maybe a little more of an example of that. So we won't be talking about sort of people participating in the manufacture and selling of drugs. What we will be talking about, say, maybe is someone who signs up to be brought into the U.S. and then is trafficked to work uh, against their will in a drug processing like facility or to mule. So we're, we're focusing on the part where the drugs and the human trafficking collide. So drug trafficking, drug trafficking into the country is something I have done a lengthy research paper on. And so I've done a lot of research and some of it's an illicit trade. There's some things that are easier than others to understand. And even the things I mentioned can change, but I, I was able to get some recent information from the DEA. So it's a, a little more official that way, but it's, <laughs> this is straight from, this is straight from the 2016 national drug assessment from the DEA. And I'll read a few parts verbatim to get this across. So Mexican TCOs transport the majority of their illicit drugs into the United States overland through the southwestern border using a wide variety of smuggling techniques. The most common method employed by them involves transporting drugs in vehicles through U.S. ports of entry. So we are going to talk about what happens in between borders, but the bulk of drugs traditionally, and it uh, looks like still a lot of it is, comes through on tr uh, tractor trailers because we have 5 million semis that cross our border one way uh -huh. or the other every year, as well as uh, there's commercial cargo drains, passenger buses, speedboats. You may have heard of tunnels, like in one of the Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just basically picture, what I always picture is just any... Anything that would be inconspicuous moving a, a vast majority, like a, a vast amount of product or people. So they're starting to use drones. They uh, tried to smuggle it in a dead shark. So any way and every way to get drugs across, they are. But it, it's, it is fascinating that so much of it comes through ports of entry. And even with a lot of infrared scanners and, and even the ways that they, they have of trying to find like is this person suspicious and sometimes they will have a suspicious car so that other cars that have secret compartments which these are clavos that have, that have secret compartments that they'll just get one intentionally caught or they'll have m multiple ones that could be caught so that they can get it through and then we'll come back to that and I'll add that with more than a half a million people entering from Mexico into the U.S. every day, it is impossible to check every car, motorcycle, truck, and tour bus. And so the four drugs that are primary are uh, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines. Because of cheap heroin, there's been a lot more heroin that's been produced in Mexico. In terms of transporting by person, 
traditionally it's been primarily marijuana because it uh, its single value was less than the rest of them. And so there, there's a challenge here that you have all of the these people that can be used to traffic drugs. And so you can have people who are professional smugglers smuggling drugs, but you also could have people who are in some way coerced into it. And it can be very difficult when they're caught. And if they were to say, as some people do, I'm trafficked. And it puts law enforcement in a very difficult position to try to figure out, is this person being honest or not? Well, I think also, too, what complicates things is is what we actually discussed in our very last podcast, which is people's awareness of that they actually have been trafficked. So what we see happens a lot in human trafficking are people enter into some sort of, again, our psychological coercion podcast. I'm still so happy with it because I think this explains it so well. But when you enter into an agreement as a human being and you've been told this is what you have to do for us and if you get caught, you are going to go to jail or we are going to kill you if you tell them about us, I I think the likelihood of someone who is crossing into a foreign country where they may or may not speak the language and then is then stopped by someone in law enforcement who has a weapon and says, you know, tell us the truth or you're going to get into trouble. I find it very unlikely that every single person that happens to is going to go, oh, my goodness, thank goodness. Let me just spill my 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 deep, dark soul to you because I, I can trust you in this moment. So there's different types of coercion that we could talk about there, but we're going to get really individual, even though it's lots of the majority of drugs are not transported on individuals. We mm-hmm. are being in human trafficking, very concerned about the individuals and people who are coerced. So yeah. So the most common term is a mule. What is a mule, JJ? Uh, other than you know, a they, hybrid of a donkey and horse. Yeah. So a mule is an individual that as used basically as a vessel to transport drugs from country to country. So one of the things that I think probably the, the most common sort of narrative we get is that a trafficker Now, this is a drug trafficker will get someone either in the organization or pay someone to swallow little balloons. And these balloons are are typically made of a condom or another non-porous plastic bag that's filled with drugs. And this is very dangerous because if these bags rupture and they often do in your stomach, you will die of an overdose. Okay. Imagine if you've got 20 or 30 little bags of heroin in your stomach one burst and you and you could die so these balloons that contain these illicit drugs are in a human being the human being goes across the border goes to the bathroom the bathrooms come out you know the drugs come out they make the delivery of the drugs and then ideally they're they're done they're paid now when it becomes an intersection with human trafficking and not just drug trafficking is when the person being the mule the person carrying these drugs when they are not doing this 
by choice. They didn't sign up for this. They're not getting a payment from this. So the one narrative in particular that I wanted to to cite from the UNODC was uh, someone who was identified as a woman named DJ. DJ was someone who was actually sold into forced labor and sex trafficking. She had been being held and being used uh, by a criminal organization since she was 14. But when they discovered that she had an American passport when she was older, they suddenly realized that they could use her for, for more things. So she was, and I quote, forced to swallow 86 balloons and taken to the airport. At the airport, one of the victims became very ill. She said to me that a balloon containing the drugs had popped in her body. She collapsed right there. It all happened so fast. I watched the innocent girl die. It was painful, and especially when you have drugs inside you. I was crying and didn't know whom to turn for help. The flight attendants were unhelpful because they thought I was drunk, so I had no choice but to keep shut. I went through a lot of pain and torture. I was petrified. So someone like DJ, who is forced to carry these drugs, is forced to do something that not only is illegal, but exceptionally, like I can't stress enough, like exceptionally physically dangerous is a human trafficking drug mule. So it is men, women, and children who are used as a vessel to carry drugs, typically across borders, but it can also be used within the U.S. So say you really need to get a shipment from Miami to Pittsburgh, the fastest way to do that would be to load up a drug mule, put them on a plane, and have them fly there. You do occasionally see muling, or someone being referred to as a drug mule when maybe they're just holding the drugs. So in particular, what I'm referencing here is there have been reports of children who are sent to cross the border with uh, backpacks full of drugs. Or they might have, you know, like a stuffed animal or something with them that is full of the drugs. And they've been told that they have to carry this across. They have no choice. So you do occasionally see that referring to muling when someone just is holding it in, in some capacity, has it in, in some sort of, you know, bag or maybe taped to their body. Uh, you can also see it sometimes what they'll do is they'll duct tape it to, to a person. Uh, but more, more and more muling involves the, because as Seth pointed out, you know, the scanners and the sort of pat downs and the drug dogs have, have improved. And so, you know, so much that the easiest sort of most expedient way to fool law enforcement is to have a human being swallow the drugs. Although they can, while that's the most efficient, they can go in any crevice in the human body. Oh, and oh, do. yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're a Rick and Morty fan, you know, I'm going to need you to put, there's a quote from that where the grandfather says, I'm going to need you to put this way, way up in the butt region. Uh, and that does happen as well. I just, the, the drug muling that seems to stick up the most to me is the, uh, is the use of those, of those condoms in, in the stomach just because it is such a dangerous method, but it is the method that you can carry the most. So you can only fit so much 
stuff in a particular area or crevice, you can have someone, especially if they're being forced, you know, have a hundred or more small dime sized bags that they swallowed. And we do get reports of traffickers who, human traffickers who are using people as drug mules, who have done things uh, like numb the throat, you know, so give, give some lidocaine in the throat so that they can get more of the drugs down. Uh, this human trafficking drug mule, we've also seen reports of, you know, give some sort of muscle relaxant or something in order to better um, be able to force physically, you know, drugs down someone's throat. And that to me just because it's it's such a direct attack on your body autonomy mm -hmm. is very serious. Well, and it also makes the person the product because one big difference between drug traffickers and human traffickers is one they're transporting a product the other they're transporting a person and that when it when a person is a mule who ingests the drugs it's this really uncomfortable combination which then makes it so that when they cross the border if they were not to do what they were supposed to do and, and give all the drugs to the person, etc. Or if there is a problem, then that falls on the individual. So it's, it's hard to, f even when it's voluntary, it's one of those things where like, to what degree can you truly volunteer to do this and have it not really be a, uh, you know, horrible crime against a person that's almost like a form of trafficking. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, I do. I do. And that's, so that's what I mean when I talk about sort of the, the weird legal space that a lot of people exist in too, who are forced into doing this a, a lot of times, particularly on the cartel end, because cartels typically control the best routes, particularly to get into the, into the U S Mm -hmm. or to actually just travel safely through South America, that people will make deals or plans with coyotes, people who are human smugglers, and they'll enter willingly into these very exploitative agreements. But even though they're exploitative, that's still an agreement. That's still a decision someone has made. Once, however, though, they start the process of traveling, be it in-country or across borders, Sometimes what will happen is the coyotes or, you know, sort of the larger cartels will now say, okay, but you owe us more money. Okay, well, mm -hmm. you cost you cost us time or because you needed water, because you needed medical care, you're traveling with a child and slowing us down. You have to do this for us or we will leave you behind or we'll harm you. And because we know where you started from, again, it's the fear of are they going to harm my family in my hometown? Right. And then, you know, some of those have been unaccompanied children from Central America who have an extra layer of vulnerability. And so then the cartels can pick them up somewhere along the way and use them for that same purpose as drug mules. And when people are being smuggled nowadays, and this is partial, one of the challenges with a, a more militarized border where, you know, we're on one hand, we're making harder to get across and there's something good about that. But, 
but then it also makes it so cartels have to be involved that they've professionalized border crossings and even though many smugglers are providing a service to people if when people are being smuggled they are under a fair amount of control by those smugglers and if any of them decide to be nefarious that puts the person being smuggled in a really vulnerable position which again is how this can lead to a person being a drug mule at some point in the journey mm-hmm. and again you're not really going to walk up to a police officer and say hi I have concerns um, when you perhaps are engaged in maybe entering a country illegally or when let's say maybe twice you've carried the drugs willingly and now this third time you're being forced and I have found some payment information. So one article mentioned a drug mule could earn as little as 3000 a trip or less. But, you know, assuming they're even paid, it's, it's uh, doing something that's very risky from, you know, for their health and their life. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of mules in not just that come to the U.S., but in, all throughout Latin America where they end up getting arrested. And... <laughs> I mentioned earlier how when cars are crossing that one of them can be caught and drug traffickers are okay with that because they have others that can get across. And the same thing that can apply to human mules, which is even uh, more disgusting because then they can get caught and then other people can get through. Yeah, if you've got seven or or eight people crossing per, per day, all with, you know, some you know, a hundred, a hundred bags in them. And if only one person gets arrested, if only one person dies, you know, what are, you're not going to be that out. You know, realistically, if, if you're looking at people just as economic sort of figures. But uh, when mules cross in between borders, they, drug traffickers can be more flexible with how people carry. That's where they can have people carry backpacks and and so on whereas uh putting it inside a person is a lot harder to detect through normal means and a a movie i've seen that uh, illustrates this really well it's called maria full of grace and uh, it's somebody from latin america who is used as a drug mule and it shows the entire process and it shows the dangers and and uh, them trying to cope in the U.S. after that. So if you want to have an idea what this actually visually looks like, that it's a really good movie. So yeah. Uh, anything else on drug mules? Just that I, I do kind of want to maybe cite something from... So there's a, there's a bulletin that comes out um, several times a year called The Global Eye on Human Trafficking. And... They talk about how the vast majority of, or at least in their experience, the vast majority of people who are involved in this actually are women. Uh, just because women tend to be a little bit more vulnerable for men in terms of economic need or not having maybe a lot of resources uh, to cash in on that would be exploited by traffickers. And also that 
women are less likely to be seen, particularly women traveling with children, are less likely to be seen as sort of dangerous entities or something that you need to be concerned with sort of by like airport security or you know, border, border crossing controls, because if it's a single woman with children, especially younger children, it's sort of presumed that like, of course, they're not involved in anything illicit. You know, of course, they're not in any way, you know, causing harm, whereas a single male traveling alone is seen as a little bit suspicious. Now, they were talking specifically about in, in this particular report, which I will share with all of you, they're discussing particularly the trafficking of people uh, via drugs into the United Kingdom with a focus on people being taken from Nigeria, Jamaica, South Africa, and Caribbean islands into Europe. So whether or not this is equally true, say in the South America or US version, I couldn't find any statistics on, but anecdotally from what I could find narrative wise, it does seem to be women. Um, Again, though, is this kind of the thing that with sex trafficking where, yes, there are more women, but also the only narratives we tend to see are women because men don't tend to come forward as much. That that I, I don't know, and I would be very interested to, to see more on sort of the this gendered, segregated reporting. But I also would like to point out that people who are human trafficking victims who are also used as drug mules, it's not that when they finally arrive in, the, in their destination and they give the drugs to, you know, whatever sort of like bag man or person they were supposed to meet up with, that it's over for them. These people are still considered property. They're still considered an asset. So as a result, these people are then right back into the trafficking system. So they might be trafficked to be domestic workers. They might be trafficked into sex work they might be trafficked immediately back into country to carry more drugs or some combination thereof so i just want to make it clear that it's not like this is a one-way trip and then you're free and one of the things that i do want to reference it's just way too much for me to kind of go through because it is a whole book <laughs> but I'll, I'll attach the link for all of you it's probably one of the best books i've read lately on human trafficking uh which actually it's from 2007 so it's it's not that brand new but i i recently stumbled across it and i'm absolutely in love with it and it's called perfect victims and real survivors the iconic victim and domestic human trafficking law and what it specifically does is it breaks down the definition of victimhood and who is a victim and who's not. And one of the things that it talks about specifically is this idea of looking at trafficking victims as illegal aliens or persons who have done illegal border crossings. And so not being as deserving sort of in the public discourse of attention as other victims. And I mean, this goes on for pages and pages and pages, and it is an academic text that focuses a lot on law rhetoric. So it can be a little, okay, it can be a lot dry, but I think it just does an excellent job of breaking this down. On a more sort of individual note, one of the things that we don't really see portrayed as victims quite so much, but nevertheless are, is this idea of the corner boy. And... Again, not to be gendered, corner boys can also be corner girls. 
but yeah, it's it's a primarily male presentation. So what a corner boy is is an individual who is is working for a gang or working for some drug dealer, some sort of drug dealing institution. So it might actually be an arm of the cartel, as as Seth has mentioned. Um, I believe is is it MS thirteen? Yeah. That you mentioned, yeah. So like as an arm of MS thirteen, I I always want to make it like MTG, like Magic the Gathering or something that it's not. And what happens with that is so you have young people who are brought into this, and just as we talked about in our episode on prostitution where we kind of talked about the idea of survival sex is if you are willing to do X, Y, and Z for us, we will permit you to have a place to sleep. We'll give you um, money for food. We will forgive a debt that maybe someone in your family has to us, especially if it's a drug-related debt. And so, again, sometimes you can have people who are there willingly. Sometimes you can have people who are there but are being exploited. And then, and the third, which is you can have people who are just literally being forced to be there. And so what these people on the corner tend to do, these young men, because they're minors, they're tasked with, one, being lookouts for the police. Because if they get picked up, they're not going to be serving hard time because they're young. And then two, they're also being used to hold or deliver drugs because again, if they get picked up, they're not going to have a felony possession charge because they're underage. So you see quite young people, you know, 10 year olds, 11 year olds, 12 year olds, because it's the gang using them for their youth. Also, you just tend to not look as suspicious. Kids, teenagers hanging out on a corner just talking, you know, outside of a school, not very threatening. A group of 40-year-old men, certainly very different. So, but the problem with these corner boys is that you're putting children in an exceptionally dangerous position that they cannot consent to. There is an additional part two of of the corner boys which is quite frightening and again um to reference a book oh i just screwed that up okay hold on um okay i'll start again okay so then you have an additional issue which is the economics of an illegal drug market. Okay. All right. So when you are looking at how to make money in drugs or how to keep an individual loyal to you, selling drugs, whatnot, the, one of the best ways to do that is to get someone addicted to the drugs. Now, if you're going to be successful at drug dealing, or if you're going to be sort of successful and I, how, how to say I, the drug market, the, one of the rules is you never get high off your own supply, right? You make money from the drugs, but you don't partake in the drugs. But if you're a low level street member 
one of the ways to keep people indebted to you is to have them financially dependent on you. That financial dependence, again, as I mentioned, can come from we provide housing, we provide food, or we forgive a debt. Now, that debt might be a familial debt, but one of the best ways to ensure that you're going to consistently have someone working for you who has to keep returning and has to keep working for you and has to stay loyal to you, you know, someone who can't go to law enforcement, is to get someone to participate in the illicit market with you beyond sort of being a seller. And by that, you get someone addicted, maybe not necessarily to the drugs that you are having them sell or hold because that's a little dangerous, but by getting them addicted to some form of drugs. And that way you have this sort of additional financial control over them where you have to pay. I have to work for them to pay off this debt because I have this thing that physically I do need. I have a dependency on. I have an addiction to it. And so I can't very easily walk away. And more than that, it has a profound impact sort of on my 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 cognitive abilities, my thinking mm-hmm. abilities, my ability to problem solve and like prioritize things. So I'm even less likely to go against this person that's providing me this thing that I need to keep from getting sick. Because if you do any sort of research into drugs, you learn that they stop being fun for most people rather quickly. And then it becomes uh, just a very, a very tough struggle to maintain and, and not get ill from withdrawal. And it's too common a narrative. And I found one article from April, which I'll just read the beginning of. A teenager was walking down a road in August 2016 when a man and a woman pulled up in a sedan, flashed a gun, and ordered her into the car. Then the complaint says they drove her to a residence, held her down by her arms as she struggled, and injected her with a narcotic with a needle inserted between her toes. After that, a group of men and women forced her to have sex for money while pumping her full of drugs. And we've heard that sort of thing in multiple narratives, and it's just disturbing and it's unfortunately common to find some way to to manage a person and and also give them incentive if they're in any form of sex trafficking to engage in commercial sex to pay for drugs which then can haunt them after if they even get free of their trafficker then they still need to feed their habit and may may turn to prostitution for that which if you're doing it to fill an addiction is not a situation anyone should have to be in. Yeah. And this sort of narrative, I know it seems a little bit like the Liam Neeson trafficking movie taken that we complain about all the time, but while that movie is ridiculous and not how most trafficking goes, there are elements of truth to it, which is if, if you can keep a person compliant And if you can mentally sort of break someone or gain control over someone, you will have longstanding control. And one of the easiest and most expensive ways to do that is through the use of narcotics. So whether it's getting people, you know, uh, addicted by forcing them to take pills or whether it's just forcing someone to take pills and orders so that, you know, they're knocked out. So when they're not working or when they are working, they're not as aware of their surroundings. Uh, weirdly enough, if one of, I think, the best examples of this or 
kind of the element this has with like psychological coercion, since Seth and I like to bring in pop culture references, is I don't know if all of you have watched Jessica Jones, but it's a show I'm kind of obsessed with. <laughs> Seth's heard me talk about it way too much. But that the main character was taken and controlled for six months against her will and had no human agency because of basically a chemical reaction in her brain that's triggered by this guy making demands, that's human trafficking. That's slavery via the use of chemicals to gain control over someone. And in, in the show, she details about how there's longstanding effects from that, not just the trauma of going through that, but also the um, just sort of the lingering after effects of what happens when you're, when your body undergoes that sort of stress continuously. So a few other angles to this disturbing narrative. So uh, another report from the Boston Herald where human traffickers would stand outside opiate, stand at clinics where people have uh, opiate issues and they would try to prey on the women leaving these clinics and uh, you know the fact that people who have addictions are vulnerable like if you have a serious drug addiction you have a vulnerability to potentially do things or be lured into things because of your of the addiction and human traffickers know this and so there there's they, this is another way that they uh, abuse people and uh, entice them into human trafficking, which is <sighs> just all horrible. Well, it's it's as we talked about sort of this this taking advantage too. We, we've seen happen with people with with mental illness or disability too. It's that human traffickers are not good people, and so these are people who are going to take any vulnerability they have, whether it's past trauma whether it's mental or emotional issues, whether it's just vulnerabilities from not really having a lot of support or contact, you know, with your community, just not having a, a wide support network. All of these things are things that can be used and are used frequently by traffickers. And so it's not a surprise to me that if they're going to use like homelessness against a teenager, that they would use drug addiction or alcohol addiction against children and adults. It, it doesn't surprise me. Nevertheless, it's incredibly upsetting because again, these are people who are in need of help. They are going through, you know, I, I personally, I'm from Washington, Pennsylvania, which mm -hmm. is right outside Pittsburgh, which is right now, one of the heroin capitals of the U.S. So if, you know, the the number of people, if I could go a week without someone who I who I knew, either through a friend of a friend or that I went to high school with who doesn't die of an overdose currently, it's it's a good week. It's it's quite rare at this point. It's it's a major epidemic in my area. And so these are people the addicts are people who need help desperately um and are already in great mental and physical distress and to prey on that to then harm them further <laughs> is insane well and but i have I mean, a 
yeah. I have I have a article that hits close to home, and since it's in Pennsylvania, uh, I can understand that. Because uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm also from Pennsylvania, northwestern Pennsylvania, but I went to college in central Pennsylvania, Messiah College, which uh, is in between a few counties. One of them, Dauphin. Dauphin County yeah. has a lot of poverty. It's it's rural, small town area, but it has a lot of poverty, a lot of youth. I have had a friend who's done uh, youth ministry there and worked with multiple churches for a long time. So, you know, I've seen the area, I've seen the kids, I, I, I can visualize it. And so a story that uh, just came out just really um, pisses me off. And it's so disturbing because it, it just crosses all these intersections. Mm-hmm. And it's that these two guys set up a fake church called Beyond Your Limits Church. Uh-huh. And they enticed, they found drug addicts. And they were in their 20s and the girl was 16. And they, in order to get, in return for crack cocaine and heroin, they had them steal Sony Playstations from stores. They filmed the teen engage in a sex act. They had, they also to some degree, had them engage in sex and returns for drugs. And they also beat them and shoot, shot some of them with BB guns. And, you know, for me, the people that, like, take advantage of fundraising for Haiti, the people that have fake churches in order to mm-hmm. traffic people are the places where there's a, a special hell for those type of people right regardless whether you believe in hell or not like no but it's i think this is just so you're (sighs) well it's not dissimilar from i think you and i have talked kind of in brief i mean i one of the things that we talked about when we were forming this podcast and i think sort of our intro is that one one of the things that struck both of us is how how important our faith is to us like individually but then also like to our role as scholars right you know my my faith as a Roman Catholic, even one that like routinely fights with her priest is sort of this idea that, that life is for service to other people and that everyone has dignity and everyone has a right to live, live their life and be counted as an individual. Oh, and if you like that quote, life is for service, that's from Fred Rogers, who is also a Pittsburgh native. What up, Pennsylvania? But it, so nothing upsets me more than when, and, and we have reports of this, and maybe this is a podcast for later on down the road, Seth, when you and I come across stories about the use of faith being misused to control people. So, you know, that you're going to go to hell or, or, or whatever the equivalent is if you don't work for us, if you follow, if you don't follow our rules. Uh, the, if you try to disobey us, you are sinning and creating, you know, you're you're harming yourself internally. So you have all of this guilt. That's what really upsets me. Because for me, faith is supposed to be this beautiful thing that helps people, not harms them. So when you add that faith element and mix it in with, people who are suffering from a very serious physical ailment that is just insane to me and it's very frustrating 
Yeah, so drugs. Drugs are a problem, and transnational criminal organizations are a problem. Gangs are a problem, and especially when they're involved with drugs. Well, and then, too, I think for, for the final piece of it is that then law enforcement has a very hard time. They already have a hard time identifying victims of trafficking that are not minors, right? So we already know that if you're not, if you're, if you're like over the age of 18, law enforcement, it's hard for law enforcement or for strangers just to notice that you're in distress, because you tend to blend in with sort of the working public. This is why when we do have people who are sort of rescued by large-scale law enforcement efforts, it's normally in sex trafficking because they're picked up in other bus or sort of, you know, sort of certain brothels or pimps or what have you are targeted uh, by law enforcement because they're known, perhaps, and generally, from what I understand, it's they're known because there's some sort of hint that there is improper things happening with people who are too young to be legally consenting. So this is why we don't see a lot of people who get picked up sort of by law enforcement for being in clear labor trafficking situations, particularly older men. You know, you drive by a construction site, you see 20 guys over the age of 20 working, you don't necessarily think, well, half of them might be trafficking victims when they look like these big tough guys working on a construction site, when the reality is they very well might be. You mix in, too, someone who is either A, involved in the movement the buying or selling of drugs and then someone who is clearly on drugs and for law enforcement who have these very quick interactions with people and they tend to have the same sort of interactions again and again how are they supposed to identify that this person who is addicted is addicted yes maybe was committing a crime to fuel that addiction but is also a victim of human trafficking it it involves layers of sort of discussion and trust building and sort of community involvement that I don't really think we see anymore. Yeah. And, and training and, and resources to fund depart, you know, within departments, specializations with human trafficking. And that's not something just coming from us. I mean, we've, we've hear that sort of thing from law enforcement too, that there's just so many resources. There's only so much training and there are places where being a police officer is difficult. So if you're trying to deal with, say, drug gangs, <laughs> there's yeah, already a lot exactly. to manage. And having to also identify, okay, which of these people are being forced or have been seduced into this and which haven't, it's difficult. but. It's something we have to aim for. Yeah. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean we can't do it. Now, it is also the part that we haven't talked about, though, is that it's not just a time thing. It's a money thing. Everything comes back to money, Seth. And not having enough of it. Because you have to convince law enforcement and also policymakers and then sort of constituents who are paying money in um, that that this is worth spending money on over something else. So that is a lot of different aspects of drugs and human trafficking. I am all for doing what we can to mitigate drugs 
in communities and getting into our country, I am highly skeptical that we're going to make high inroads, especially since we've spent a ton of money on the war on drugs and still have a country flooded with drugs. Yeah. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And, you know, regardless of whether I believe the lofty rhetoric from President Trump or anyone else on how easy it is to stop drugs coming into our country. Yeah, there's, you know, whatever, if we can do something that's more effective, great, let's do that. And if there's, if something didn't work, try something else. And, and, um, but yeah, the, these, uh, cartels, they're just, they're very agile businesses and, uh, it's, it's a really big challenge when they're doing all sorts of testing to see how they can get drugs across the border. And when they're paying people off, they've paid off border agents. It's just really, really difficult. Yeah. And individuals like mules, they, they, uh, they, they just get to be disposable in either. It just, as it is with human trafficking, human trafficking is about disposable people, which is why Kevin Bales titled his book, Modern Trafficking is About Disposable People. Yep. That's all I've got. Not our happiest podcast ever. I'm afraid to say. But, you know, still very useful. And if you are someone, since we live in Denver, who are a recreational user of things that have dubious legality at the federal level, try to do your best to ethically source what it is that you're buying and who you're buying it from. And there we have it. All right, everyone. Think about other things. And uh, always remember, if you look at our website, there are the numbers to the two human trafficking hotlines, the one in Colorado and the one that Polaris runs from D.C. If you have a tip, if you wonder if somebody is in a situation or if you wonder about your own situation, give them a call and they will do referrals and figure out what needs to happen. And with that, uh, bye everyone. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.